Nella Rucker of the Wise Economy Workshop Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I want to share with you today a presentation from a conference a couple of months ago that unpacks what I've been talking about with regard to retail revitalization and the issues facing retail districts, whether they're traditional downtowns or they're older suburban-style retail districts, some of the issues that planners overlook and that economic development people sometimes overlook. And when we overlook them, then we wonder why the efforts that we make don't work out the way that we thought they would. This session is designed to sort of unpack the experience that a lot of small businesses have. Things relating to independence, to um, access to information, to a whole variety of issues that if you're not in the that world of small business and entrepreneurship, if you're not living in that every day, you might not always be aware of. So this is a session that obviously was accompanied by slides. You can find those slides and you can find an annotated version of this presentation on the Wise Economy blog. But my hope is that listening to the presentation will give you a little bit of a, an insight into some of these questions. Like with most things, the answers are not always easy to come by, but sometimes just understanding somebody else's perspective can help us to find the right answer. This is a conference session, so it is fairly long. It runs roughly 45 minutes. And so I'm not going to come back at the end like I often do with a wrap-up. So instead, I'll just say that if you have good ideas or um, concepts for future podcasts or you know of some good folks that we should be talking to, please give me a call at your convenience. You can reach me at Della.Rucker at WiseEconomy.com or on Twitter at the at sign Della Rucker or you can reach us at Facebook at Della Rucker A-I-C-T-C-E-C-D. Thanks very much and I hope you enjoy. So good morning. Have we got everybody we think? Probably. All right. Um, for those of you that don't know me, and I know a lot of folks in this room. Uh, my name is Della Rucker. I'm principal of a firm called the Wise Economy Workshop. We also have a service called New World Public Engagement, which is sort of the public engagement side of that firm. And what we focus on is predominantly two things. One is that public engagement piece. We do a lot of work with online public engagement. The other is economic revitalization planning. So I'm a weird bird in that I have an AICP. I also have a CECD, which is Certified Economic Developer. And so I kind of have a foot in each of those worlds anymore. And for me, where those come together is around the question of what do you do with a place that has seen better days, whether it's a retail environment or a community or an industrial setting. And how do you get your head around how to move forward in a more effective method? So today we're going to be talking specifically about retail environments. And a lot of what I'm going to say is going to sort of be a little different from what you're used to hearing from an economic development setting. 
what, or I'm sorry, from a planning setting, I, I saw a, a colleague of mine who's an economic developer, and I went, whoa, wait, wait, which, which, where am I today? You're confusing me, Jennifer. Um, so a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is, is what happens when the design tools and the physical place tools that you've learned through your planning careers aren't quite cutting the mustard. So I'm going to start if this thing decides to move forward. By the way, the, um, I, don't, I don't print copies of handouts anymore because I got yelled at for killing trees too many times. The presentation will be available on, it'll be available through the hour, it'll be available on ohioplanning.org yeah, Ohio within a few days. It will also be available at um, wiseeconomy.com, which is my site. And the version on my site will have some annotation. It'll have some written explanation of what the heck it was I was saying. All right, so I gave you a little bit of my background. Let me start with a little bit more frame on this. I grew up in Cleveland. I grew up in a small Rust Belt industrial town in Cleveland. I spent most of the 90s in Green Bay, Wisconsin, <coughs> which everybody knows from Packers, but what people also don't know is that Green Bay was the skid row a portion of Green Bay, at least, was known as the Skid Row for Northeast Ohio, or Northeast Wisconsin, get my states right. When I first moved to Green Bay, that area was known as being the place where if you were homeless, that was where you wanted to hang out. Being homeless in Green Bay is not a good idea. It was also the place where if you wanted to buy a quarter tap, that was the place where you could find them. Anybody know what a quarter tap is? Quarter tap is a little glass of beer. It's like this big. It's the crap at the bottom. You know what happens when you mush together the bottom of the, the the kegs? You know you dump them all together and you get that. And they sold it for a quarter. So this was not a part of town that was really beloved. I had the good fortune of being involved in starting a Main Street program there which was still one of the best experiences of my life. And you can see up there, you can see the banners from Green Bay, where Green Bay comes to life, from on Broadway. And you can also see the Great American Main Street Award. And that district went from being the Skid Row of Northeast Wisconsin to a winner of the National Award for Excellence in Downtown Revitalization in the course of about 10, 15 years. It took a while, but we got there. After I left Green Bay and I came here to Ohio, I had the good fortune of working with a lot of communities, and there's pictures of a few of them there, looking at different issues relating to everything from how do we manage a district that's become so popular that all of the storefronts are getting filled with offices, to how do we deal with a district where half of the buildings are at risk of falling down. So it's been kind of a long, strange trip sometimes. We have this perception in economic development of thinking about the work of doing economic development as being about chasing the big win. So I just came from the International Economic, Developer, International economic Development Council's Leadership Summit earlier this week, IEDC, if you go looking for it. And a big part, of, a huge part of the conversation was about 
This isn't the way it works anymore. What do we need to do today? The good news for those of you that have retail districts, whether they're cute little downtowns like this or they're more like I was talking to Marty in Middletown, you know, sort of more industrial or more post-war settings, is that people are looking for the kinds of places that have that can have some character, that can have some activity. That even if it's not the most beautiful setting, you don't put the ugly pictures up here typically for your happy picture. Even if that retail district isn't, you know, the, the happy place, the pretty place, it's still a place that more and more matters to people in the community. And it's more and more the place where the majority of economic activity and the economic opportunity is happy, happening. The problem is that when we as planners, we as people who work with communities are looking at these places, we're much more likely to see something that looks like this or worse than what we saw in that previous picture. So we have this ongoing question of, all right, what the heck can we do with this thing? So I want to start by taking a very large step back. As you look at a retail district, and think about whether it's a, a strip suburban area in your community, or it's a downtown, or it's any of the above. Does it look like this? If you think about how it works, not physically how it looks, but if you think about how it works, does it look more like this, or does it look more like that? How many people think it looks like the first picture? Nice, neat, rational. You could draw a nice little flow chart and everything would be lovely. How many people think it looks like the tangled mess? You, can, you, you guys have hands. Let's see some hands here. How many people think it looks like the tangled mess? All right. We got some consensus on that one. How many people are going, what the heck is she talking about? I don't want to ask that question. All right. So here's, as I've been thinking and sort of beating my head on these issues for a long period of time, here's my sense of what I think the, the root problem is. We've had a tendency to think about economies, whether it's a community or a district or a region, as being like big machines. Anybody know what this machine is? Okay, I heard printing press. That's a really good guess. It's not a printing press. Pardon? It's a paper. It's a paper mill. Right. Exactly. Good job. Gold star for for recognition of obscure uh, mechanical equipment. This is a paper machine. And you don't really get much of a sense of scale of this from this picture, but that paper machine would probably extend from this wall to the wall over there where the summer fair pictures are or beyond, and it's probably two stories tall. It's a huge machine. And it spits out, you, the, the way these things work is you feed paper sludge, you feed the pulp, which is mostly water with a little bit of um, wood chips, wood fiber in it. You feed it into one end of the machine and it goes through a whole bunch of different processes that gradually pull the water out and squash the fibers together. And it goes round and round, and so there's continuous processes for taking out more water, squashing it together, taking out more water, squashing it together. Until at the end, you get this thing called a Yankee, which is the final dryer, the final squasher, and it rolls out that master roll on the end. The nice thing with a paper machine 
or any kind of mechanical process is that if the stuff that's coming out the end doesn't look so good, or it's not quite meeting the standards, or something's funky going on, you've got 5, 10, 20 places within the mechanical process that you can twiddle. So you can change the consistency of the pulp that's going in. You can, you know, modify the rates of how the water's being sucked out, all of that kind of thing. We've had a tendency to think about economic activity as being like this. In reality, we're learning and understanding more and more, and this is the conversation that we had at that conference earlier this week, we're understanding more and more that those economies, whether they're downtowns or strip districts or regions, operate more like an ecosystem. And it looks like one thing, it looks like a tree, but what probably lives in the tree or on the tree? Squirrels, birds, bugs, um, fungus, lichens, all sorts of things. And what happens if there's probably predators in there, there's lots and lots and lots of things, right? We all do biology one-on-one, we know what can live in a tree. What happens if you take one of those things out of the system? Let's say that you take the a particular kind of bug and you spray the tree with EDT, you take out a particular kind of bug. What does that do to the rest of the creatures in that ecosystem? It has a negative impact, right? What one thing, it, it, you know, it may have an impact on a certain animal because it's used to eating that bug. It may have an impact because there's a poisoning effect. It can have all sorts of different consequences. They're tied together. And my argument in economic development circles has been over the last several months that instead of thinking about these things as being something where we can push buttons and maneuver levers and make things happen, that we need to, be, we need to shift our thinking to how do we facilitate a healthy ecosystem. So what kind of levers do we often default to trying to push when we're dealing with retail districts? Well. We want to think about, oh, we need to fix the streetscapes. Obviously, if we fix the streetscapes, everything will work, right? Is anybody here from Portsmouth? Todd's not in the room. So, anybody know Portsmouth? Portsmouth, Ohio? Okay, I got a couple. All right, this is the main street in Portsmouth. Had a nice little streetscape put in. This is not a brand new streetscape in this picture. This is a streetscape that's probably five years old, ten years old. And what happened? They spent a huge amount of money on the streetscape. They got a big grant to do the streetscape. If the picture were a little bit wider, you know what you'd see? Three vacant storefronts right next to this vacant streetscape. Fixing a streetscape isn't pushing that lever doesn't make the change. Another thing we often think is causing the problem is vacant buildings. So we get very, very, very worried about vacant buildings. But there is, an, there is an economic argument for vacancy. Obviously, if everything's vacant, you've got a problem. But vacancy allows for something new to come in, and that's important. So just filling all the vacancies, if you talk to people who do retail, and do, um, what's your work called, Kath Kathleen? It's um, brokerage? 
We'll go with that word. The lease you're talking about is retail leasing. Retail leasing. You talk to people who do retail leasing. Thank you, dear. You're, you need to have some vacancy or there are no options for anything new. Another thing, you know, now I'm talking to planners. I do this, this kind of talk for a lot of folks. Now I'm doing it for the planners. You guys know we worry a lot about cars. Where do we put the cars? Do we need any more cars? Can we get rid of the cars? How are we going to manage the cars? And it's important to manage the cars. But it's not the lever that you can push that and make the entire economy work because there's lots of places that work beautifully well that are full of cars. Go to downtown Chicago or any of the healthy neighborhoods in Chicago or Milwaukee or New York, and you will see neighborhoods that are chock-a-block with cars, but are also completely full of people. People doing the things that you want them doing in your retail districts. So cars are not, cars need to be addressed, but they're not the lever. So is there a simple solution? I don't think so. I don't think there's a magic answer here. There's some other issues that I think we need to be thinking about. And this is where I'm pulling away from a lot of the conventional tools that we learned about in planning school and saying that if we're really serious about making these environments work, we need to do something a little different. We need to change it up. We need to look at the whole ecosystem. We need to broaden our definition of what we're doing away from just pushing those levers that are the ones we learned about in planning school and the ones we read about in planning magazine. Here's something that is often a surprise. If you have never dealt with small business owners, sometimes people have, who are running a business really have no freaking idea what they're doing. I did a entrepreneurship training for Heritage Ohio, which is a state Main Street program one time. And there were a group of us from all over the state, where it's about uh, 10, 12 of us, who were sitting around a table talking about what do we need to do in this training. And the gentleman who is head of revitalization for Heritage Ohio, which is a state um, preservation and Main Street program, he's kind of struggling. He's kind of, you know, he's an articulate guy, but he couldn't quite figure out how to say what he wanted to say. And the rest of us are sitting there going, and he finally spits it out. He says, well, they're just the, the, the business owners, the, the people who, they, they're just nuts. <laughs> and everybody who was sitting at the table went, yeah, you're right. It was, it was, it was right on the money. You see, especially when you're dealing with small business owners, you're going to see behavior sometimes where you look at it, especially if you have any background in business or you've ever been around businesses, you look at it and you go, really? Sometimes that's just because they don't know. Sometimes it's because they don't have the capacity to do it right. Here's another way of thinking about it. Business owners, like people in organizations, people maybe in your department, have a tendency to think we're cowboys. We're strong, we're American, we're self-sufficient, we can do this. I don't need anybody else to help me. I'm a cowboy. 
Don't walk that far away when you're done saying that. <laughs> it's fine to be a cowboy. It's fine to say, I'm self-sufficient, I'm independent, I do my own thing, if you truly can and you can live in a place like this. But the fact of the matter is, most of us don't. And most businesses, particularly retail businesses, aren't on 300 acres in the mountains of Montana away from everything else. Even the retailers that are in Montana are in environments like this. And obviously, you recognize this as Hyde Park. It could have easily have been any commercial strip, right? It's the same dynamic at work, whether it's auto-oriented or pedestrian-oriented, whether it's old or new. They're dependent on each other. Because those small business owners or operators are saying, I'm a cowboy, I'm independent, I can do my own thing, they end up trying to do everything. And when you try to do everything, do you do everything well? Never. <laughs> the, the voice from the front row was, never. <laughs> and that is a gospel truth. I mean, I'm a small business owner. I have my second I guess I, I don't know if I'm a serial entrepreneur now because there was a gap, but I'm on my second small business. I'm no better at certain tasks like financial management, billing, those kind of things. I've got a, I've got a couple of people who are sub-consultants to me in the room, and I'm like, yeah, I should have said that. Um, I'm no better at that stuff now than I was with my previous business in Green Bay. You know, it's just, it's not my strong suit. But what do you end up doing? You end up trying to be chief cook and bottle washer, sometimes because you don't have any choice. And it can be really overwhelming. So let's leave that issue for a moment. We'll come back to that. Other issues we might not think about. So we'll think a little more spatially here. That's not a location for a store anymore. With, you know, everybody in this room is acutely aware of sprawl and the, the extension of housing and retail and everything all over the world, all over our regions over the last few years, over the last 10, 20, 40 years. We have a lot of places that made sense as retail that don't make sense anymore as retail. And typically what we see is store closing signs or something I'll show you in a minute. Another problem, you know, why did that happen? Well, in some cases, the demographics changed and that business did not. So this is a lovely little candy store. It's in Missouri. It is now, and it's, it's a lovely place. It was very reminiscent for me going into, you know, the little candy store in the town where I grew up in. And, you know, you had your 50 cents and you're all excited to be able to go in there and, you know, get a sucker or a pack of jawbreakers or something like that. Great. A lot of fun. However, the community that that story's in now doesn't have those little kids anymore. It's become a very, very upscale community. And the people who are going in there are not looking for a place to spend 50 cents on a pack of jawbreakers. They're looking for gourmet chocolates. And this store has had to transition. They've had to change their market to fit. And there's a rule of thumb that I often use folks with folks. If you still have something in town that's called a feed store, and you ain't got no cattle, 
there might be a problem. Unless they found a way to, you know, do the feed store thing and, and actually reflect the demographics of the place where they live. But that's a common problem. Another one, which I alluded to a minute ago, is that strict volume of retail. Does anybody recognize this map? This is a little on the old side now, but I haven't seen a study this good come out of anywhere since. Nobody recognizes this? Obviously, it's Cleveland. Cleveland? Yeah, it's Cleveland area. It's a study that was done by NOACA, which is the Northeast Ohio Area Coordinating Agency. It was done over 10 years ago. Over 10 years ago, they analyzed the amount of retail available in various communities across the greater Cleveland area. And what you see on this map is an indication of how much retail by square footage was in each of these communities. And they run the gamut. The, the ones down in Medina County are predominantly Especially, you can see the there's a, a set a city in the middle of Medina County, and there's a township just to the north of it, and another city to the north of that. That's turned into the major retail corridor for that region over the last few years. It was not that way, you know, when I was growing up in Cleveland. If you take this map and then you overlay it with, and they do this in this report. I encourage you to find it if it's still out there somewhere. I think I have it on CD somewhere. I shouldn't have said that because God knows where the CD is. But if you, when they compared this data to residential, the, where residential was located, the amount of residential that was, was available, and the amount of spending power. And again, this is 13 years ago, 12 years ago, something on that order. They found, even back then, that the amount of retail, the amount of square footage dedicated to retail, zoned for retail, used for retail, in that region exceeded the total amount of money that was available to be spent by a factor of two. So it was double. There was, there was more than twice as much retail space as the money available in that region could support. And that was 12 years ago. Can you imagine what the numbers look like today? Here's my other rule of thumb. If you've got buildings in your retail that have been converted to army surplus stores, it's kind of like that female witness. That's probably a sign that there's more retail in the area than the area can support. So what do we do with this? One of the first things we need to do is to start thinking beyond bricks and mortar. So that's my challenge to you who are our planners today, is I don't think we can solve these problems. I don't think we can comprehensively fix this with just that one set of tools. I think one of the most important things that we need to do is to stop trying to be like everyone else and focus intently on what makes your community unique. And we tend to do that in terms of our community marketing, in terms of how we talk about individual neighborhoods, individual districts. But what we don't do is push that forward often to how we think about business recruitment. And I know some of you in this room deal with business recruitment. Some of you don't. 
but you deal with the people who do that work. And in some notable cases, and Jennifer from Harrison is one of those, where they've been very conscious about targeting and, and focusing on what it is that they can uniquely offer. Most places don't. Most places are still trying to grab anything that they can grab. So here's the next step. I really think whether we define ourselves as planners, community development directors, administrators, uh, you know, pick your title. I think we really have to start thinking not just about how to build great places, but how to build great businesses or how to facilitate the growth of great businesses. And that's a toolbox question in a lot of cases. You know, as planners, we have a toolbox for managing things like parking. We know that we can do complete street policies. We know that we can manage road widths. We can manage sidewalks, bike trails. You know, we have all these pieces. So we have tools. I showed you a little bit ago, or I, I talked about the idea that I don't think most business owners have everything in hand that they need to be able to run their business effectively and to reach their potential, a lot of times what they're lacking is tools. And if you don't have the tools, sometimes you don't even know what tools you're missing. You know, if you've never had to level something, you may not know what a level is. So, in terms of you working with them, I would say that there's four main tools in your toolbox to help them develop the tools, the resources, the capacities that they need. Communicate, coach, counsel, collaborate. That doesn't mean you have to do all of these things, right? If you don't have the tool in your toolbox, the next best thing you can do is borrow it from the neighbor, right? So the question to you may not be so much, how do I do this, as much as where can I borrow that tool set from? So step number one is communicate. And in this case, I'm talking about communication as one-on-one. -on -one. So if I'm talking to Anne, part of what I'm trying to do, not all of what I'm trying to do, but part of what I'm trying to do is to give her information. And a lot of us have newsletters. You know, there's a beautiful newsletter from Anderson Township in here, in the packet. How much are we really communicating what's going on, what, we, what, what people need to know? How much are we really getting that information out? We have a tendency sometimes to say that's on my job. We have PR people. We have communications people. I have a city manager. That's their job. But how much is it being done? And if it's not being done, how much is it impacting that understanding, that capacity of the people in your communities to, to do that. I'm going to go off on a slight tangent, and that has to do with the public engagement side. I think one of the reasons why we have so much trouble with public engagement, and if you're interested in this, there's gobs of stuff on my blog and website and podcasts and all that about it. One of the things that I think we struggle with is that we only communicate when we have something where the law says we have to, and we don't build that ongoing communication. The astonishing thing today is 
that's infinitely easier to do that, to build that ongoing communication than it was when I started my career because we don't need a print newsletter to exclusively do that. That's not the only tool in our set for that. We have other tools to make that communication. But if we're not communicating, if we're not really giving information to those businesses that says, this is what's going on, this is what we're facing in the future, these are the challenges we're, we're, we're talking about, and do that in a, in a clear fashion, we're missing a critical piece of how to build their capacity and how to build our effectiveness. The next piece when we're talking about these small business owners is coaching. A lot of times, as I indicated, these folks are chief cooks and bottle washers. They don't know what they don't know. They need somebody to play the role of that coach. And if you don't have somebody who can be that coach in your community, there's a variety of agencies, a variety of organizations. Uh, two good ones are the small business development centers, which come out of the Small Business Administration. They're regional. There's one in Cincinnati. There's one in, I believe there's one in Middletown. There's, there's, there's several in the region. Another is an organization called SCORE, Service Corps of Retired Engineers. But increasingly, in particular, especially in particular industries, there's more and more of an ability to, to, to draw out those coaches from within the community. And again, that goes back to communication. If that communication is happening, then those folks know what the need is and they can start coming into that coach role in an informal fashion. Sometimes these businesses need counseling. Sometimes they need that one-on-one -on -one help. Why might that happen? They're in trouble financially. By the time they come to you, if, if that information isn't out there, that, that counseling is available, by the time they come to you at the city and say, I can't pay my incentive, I can't pay my loan, I'm gonna go out of business, it's too late. They need that counseling farther upstream. So the key question becomes, how do you make that counseling available, and not just make it available, but communicate that it's available? And again, the resources are out there. That doesn't mean that you know Marty has to learn how to be a credit counselor next week. It does mean that if we're serious about fixing these retail districts, I think we need to think about how do we reach this. And finally, collaboration. One of the most fascinating things that I think is going on in the economic world is the growth of sort of self-organized collaborative systems. The leaders in this right now are in the tech world. So if you deal with people who do app development, who are dealing in big data applications, if you're, I, I, had, I had coffee the other day in Orlando with a gentleman who's part of a very active very astonishing group of individuals in Orlando, which I didn't even know had this going on, who are tech developers. They are IT people from big banks. They are people who are trying to launch new web applications, people who are doing all sorts of things in that space. They don't even have a name for their group yet, which is causing them problems when they go talk to city leaders. But they're working together. They get together on a regular basis. They get together, they talk about what's going on, they figure out who's got what, what 
strengths and skills and capabilities, and they combine and recombine and connect and disconnect as they need to for their individual projects. That's a collaborative network. That's an ecosystem that works. Your retail districts can do this. Essentially what that's about is about knitting together the environment. So if you talk about, think for a minute, I'm gonna pick on your, your, your scarf and your, can I, somebody have a, actually, does somebody have a knit scarf on them that I can borrow? Are you sure, hon? Of course. I was looking at one. I'm like, I'm starting down this knitting road, and then I'm like, you're the only one who had a knit today. All right, I'm just going to hold it up over here. All right. Heather has this absolutely gorgeous scarf and hat combination. And conveniently, there's a string hanging out here. Hold that promise. All right. But everybody can see that, right? So if I just have one string, and I took this string and I didn't pull it out, and I stretched it across the room. How much good would that do? Could I use that to keep me warm? Could I wear it without wrapping it around myself 947,000 times? No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be of any use. But what happens? And I'm an incredibly lousy knitter. I know one stitch and I know how to screw up in a big hurry. <laughs> <laughs> they need they need to up the caffeine on the coffee downstairs just just you know we'll give you that feedback. Um, but because this has been knit together, it is useful, it is warm, it is able to be worn, and it's frankly prettier than it would have been if it had been one long string running across the whole way. Did I get that right here? Yeah. All right. Essentially what we're looking for, and I know this is very big and very abstract, and I will tell you honestly that I'm still working out how to do this. So I'm hoping that at the end of this, we can have a little conversation about what would be the implications for this. But essentially what we're looking at doing is knitting these communities together. They're not gonna survive nine-tenths of retailers whether they're in the downtown or in a strip district, a suburban district, whatever, nine-tenths of retailers need a, net, a network. Very, very few have everything within themselves to make it go. As a side point, a couple of entities to particularly look for in your districts that particularly struggle with needing these connections. One is what we call 1099ers or freelancers. And I've actually been writing a lot about this lately because this is a really strong emerging issue. And it's an issue in retail and in other aspects of your local economy. Anybody know what a 1099 is? All right, the consultant knows what a 1099 is. The other consultant knows what a 1099 is. Do the rest of you have any idea what we're talking about? Okay, at 1099, I have to go home and fill out a bunch of these next week. I'm loving the idea. It's an IRS form. If you're a consultant, if you're a freelancer, if you do any kind of work for somebody else that you're not on their payroll for, the person that you do the work for has to fill out a 1099 at the end of the tax year. The 1099 form identifies 
what they paid you. As the 1099-er, as the freelancer, or as the gig economy person, which is another term you hear for this sometimes, I have to report those on my taxes. So I have to list, I have to have all of my 1099s attached to my taxes. You get to do this this year, Patrick. He's <laughs> like, yeah, very thrilled. It, being a 1099 is increasingly a major part of the economy in retail and in everything else going on in your economy. Numbers I saw earlier this week indicated that somewhere between 23 million and 50 million people in the United States are 1099s. Some of those are not by choice. Some of those end up doing that because that's what they can get at that moment. But a lot of people choose that lifestyle. And there's some, and, and I know if you work in a local government, that might sound very boring, but there's a certain kind of, of stability. There's, a, there's an ironic sort of, of safety to that because you know that you can't be fired by somebody else. Sometimes you're living hand to mouth, but your destiny is your own. So there's a lot of people who, in your community who are choosing that. I live in a neighborhood of 188 houses, about a third of them now have a 1099er in them that I know of. And that's just the ones I know of. There's probably a lot more. The challenge with 1099ers is that cheap cook and bottle washer issue exacerbated. Everything from how do I find jobs, how do I find my next gig, to how do I do those taxes. How do I manage my, my financial records? What is it I need to be doing? These guys, as much as anybody, they're an increasingly significant portion of your business environment. And a lot of times, they're the ones that need the building of that tool set more than anybody. Another sector of that environment, and this you're going to really find in your retail districts, especially if you have an older district meaning it wasn't just built last week, which probably most of the ones you're thinking about weren't. Something on the order of a third of all small business owners in the United States are over the age of 55. In Canada, which is the only place that I've seen this data for, they're expecting something on the order of half of their downtown type small business owners to be ready to hang out up within the next 10 years. And you know what happens? You know what they, nine times out of 10, their retirement strategy is? When I'm ready, I'm just gonna put the business, I'm gonna go get a realtor, I'm gonna put the business on the market, and I'll sell it, and I'll go buy my sailboat in Aruba and live happily ever after. And what typically happens is, they list it, it sits, and sits, and sits, and sits. And if they're lucky, maybe they can sell it for assets. Maybe they can sell it for the real estate. Maybe they can sell it for the value of the equipment in it. And that's not getting them to sell the river. And what that also means is that you run a very high risk of losing good business. So 
helping these guys connect to those resources that can give can can help them do that planning. And obviously, like any other kind of retirement planning, they got to start long before they're ready to go. But that, that's a need that they have that they may not know that they have. So what does that knitted together environment look like? Well, it looks like retiring owners who know what their game plan is. It looks like 1099ers who can be effective parts of your local economy. And I don't know 100% what it looks like, but this is part of it. This is in a downtown district in Michigan. The um, sign is on the door of a bakery. Mark, Rachel, Bob, your bread's at the store two doors down. They'll be open, they'll get it to you. That's, the be that's an indication of knitting together. So finally, because I know you're gonna have to deal with these things about those vacancies, vacancies, that's cute. Uh, all right. And again, I know a lot of you are touching economic development issues. A lot of you are not dealing day in and day out with economic development issues. To the extent that this goes into your framework, here's my take on what to do here with those vacancies. Like I said, a little's good, but if, you, if it's a big issue and you gotta deal with it, you're not gonna sell your way out of them. I really don't think that we are in a world anymore where business recruitment, other than in very limited circumstances, is gonna be a solution. It's harder and harder and harder to do. Whether you're talking about a little shop or you're talking about you know, the next uh, auto plant. It's harder and harder to do. There's fewer and fewer deals out there. A couple of things to think about. Whether you're dealing with retailers or other kinds of businesses, the power of a little bit of space is amazing. This is a co-working space in Denver, Colorado. One of the public engagement providers I work with is in this space. He can choose, he could have chosen, and he still can choose to have a conventional office. He chooses to stay in this space, in this co-working space, because the overhead costs are a fraction of what they would be otherwise, and he can connect to other people who do the same kind of work. People that he can draw ideas from, people he can draw information from, people who can work on his projects when he needs a little bit of extra help. It's a meeting space, it's a place for people to create those new economic opportunities, to create that economic ecosystem, and to do it in a very effective manner. How many of you have co-working spaces within the communities that you live in? Anybody? How many of you have no earthly idea? Come on, be honest, so these are friends. All right, I got one, two brave souls out there. I will tell you there's a co-working facility in Blue Ash, there's one in Wyoming, there's one, they're, they're in a couple of the neighborhoods in, I'm pointing at you, honey, I'm sorry. There's a couple of neighborhoods in Cincinnati that have them. Sometimes they're private. The one in Blue Ash is run by the real estate developer. Sometimes they're kind of quasi-public. Sometimes it's just a group of people getting together. But there's communities across the country that are using these as seed methods. It's a way to get people started. 
Now, again, this is a tech example. So you're like, eh, great, whatever. You have tech people in your community. You just don't know it yet. So here's an example of a way to do this in a retail environment. Who knows who this guy is? Belgium. Coast of Belgium. Jean-Francois. Gold star over there. Yes, this is Jean-Francois. Jean-Francois runs Taste of Belgium. How many of you have heard of Taste of Belgium? Okay, awesome. You can't ask that question in Orlando because they just love looking at you like you're from Mars, so that's okay. Alright, where is Taste of Belgium located? Okay, tell me. Okay, I heard Columbus. I heard an over the Rhine. Where in over the Rhine? Okay, Vine Street. Finley Market. Anybody else? All of those. Farmer's Market in Montgomery. Farmer's Market in Montgomery. When the Farmer's Market happens, because that's not permanent. All right. Also, other Farmer's Market type park. And Farmer's Park in New York. All right. Jean-Francois started. How many people have been to this space in Finley Market? Okay. Several of you. For those of you that haven't been there, the Taste of Belgium mothership, as it were, Probably not. It's, it's kind of like the birthplace, I guess, more than the mothership, is in Finley Market, down and over the rock. Jean-Francois started out with a space that is probably from my arms to the dais, here to here. That's what he started with. He had a corner in Finley Market. Finley Market is publicly owned. I don't know what the rents are for those little spaces but they're not real high. He wanted to get started. He had an idea to make those, you know, ridiculously decadent, wonderful, artery-clogging waffles of his. But he needed a place to get started. Instead of renting a storefront and having 2,000 square feet of space and having to pay rent on that and having to pay the heat and having to maintain all of that, he started with just that little corner. And lots of people have started at Finley Market with little corners like that. So he starts with this little corner. The little corner does really well. Very, very popular shop in Finley Market. So he kind of builds up a base, builds up some money. Next thing he does is get a food truck in Nashville. I think the food truck in Nashville is next. I'm not sure if he still has that. Food truck in Nashville. Then somewhere around the same time, he goes into the market in Columbus. We're building, we're building, we're building, we're building. Then he gets a he gets a space in the um, Freedom Center. So he opens a he's, he's been doing just you know waffles and crates and stuff. He's got a space in the in the in the Freedom Center. So now he can do a little bit more. It's not a great space, so that that doesn't last all that long. But now. He is on the corner of Vine and 12. He has a full-size restaurant. He has a full menu. He has a, a beer set selection that if you've never been there and you've ever had a beer in your life, you need to go there because it's, it's unheard of. What the, the beers are incredible. Food's incredible, full menu. Place is jammed to the gills every freaking time I go there. It is never 
All of that started. He'll have, I'm positive, he'll have more restaurants in the near future. And it all started with a space like this. How many of you have heard of pop-up spaces? Pop-up retail, pop-up, okay, a few of you. If you haven't, that's what I'm talking about here. It's a, it's, a, it's a version of that. It's a temporary space. But if you can find a way to just have a little bit of space for somebody to get started in, inexpensively, whether that's a retail space within an existing, you know, if it's a deal you can work with somebody, that's powerful. Kimco Real Estate. Everybody heard of Kimco? Okay, I, I know you have. Crying out loud, Ann. <laughs> She's like, crap, I ain't putting my hand up again. <laughs> Kimco just recently announced, because Kimco is a national owner of millions of square feet of conventional retail, of suburban retail. Kimco just announced that they are going to do pop-up spaces and, you know, basically entrepreneurial startups within their, their spaces in several communities. I don't know the details of it yet. I've just barely seen that within the last day or two. But they get that if they are going to be able to populate these spaces, they got to start growing their own. And growing your own, I am absolutely convinced, looking at things across the country, talking to people across the country, that's where the opportunity lies. Last piece on that point, we talked before about sometimes there's just too much retail. The Urban Land Institute put out a great study, and again, this is 10 years ago, that was, that was called, it was basically about pruning back, it was 10 strategies for reinventing suburban strips. It's something along the, that line. And what they talked about even back then, strategy number one, prune back the retail. What do you prune that back to? My argument would be anything that brings people into that district. A daycare, great. Residential, great. Church, depending on the environment, some environments are fine, some are not. Anything that brings people into that environment is going to support the rest of the retail and you probably got too much dedicated retail space, so provide other reasons, facilitate other reasons for people to be there. So most importantly, have a plan. I don't need to tell that to you guys, but Jennifer did not rat on me to the economic development world. Economic development people, and again, I have a clip here and a clip here. Economic development people do not always get plans. And I don't just mean comprehensive plans, quarter plans, and the like. I mean planning, the figuring out of what is it that makes sense for us to do and how are we going to get there. They're improving. In fact, I'm doing a training on strategic planning for Ohio Economic Development Association in a month or so. I should know that. Um, they're starting to get it. But they don't understand the intuitive power of planning anywhere near the way you guys do. They don't understand it intuitively. Always. Some do, a lot don't. Help them understand why planning matters. And if necessary, adjust how you are doing planning to actively 
address and corral those economic development issues. It's not, it cannot be in silos anymore. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It's not working. So help them. So does all that sound a little squishy? And the answer can probably definitely be yes. But here's the piece that I want to leave you with. That whole system has to work. It's not a machine. We don't have levers to push. It's an ecosystem. If the whole system doesn't work, you can have the prettiest streetscape in the world. You can have the best damn zoning code in the world. And I think it'll make a difference. The whole system has to work, or else none of it does. As I said, well, one more piece on that. And here's the deep challenge, I think. And this is a deep challenge that I've been talking about to economic development people, community development people, administrators, and planners. I've been talking about this all over the country. We have to fundamentally change our thinking from fixing it to helping it evolve. I established before that there was only one person, you were the only person who like, knew Portsmouth, right, Monday? She's like, yeah, I don't know. what are you talking about? Yeah. All right. Who knows? I just tipped you off. Who knows what this is? Yay! <laughs> the teacher gave us the answer, so we will say what the answer is. <laughs> Anybody know what specifically this is, given that that was all I heard, but probably the answer is no. This is Chilcothy Street in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. <laughs> Portsmouth. Portsmouth. We'll edit that part out, I think. Um, Chilcothy Street in Portsmouth. My mother was a native of Portsmouth. My mother grew up on the hill. She was what they called a ridge runner. And I was an adult before I understood why, if I called, if I said that her family was hillbillies instead of ridge runners, that I got popped in the head. Um, as a Cleveland, we didn't know these things. When my mother was growing up, this is what Chilcothy Street in Portsmouth looked like. This was the bright lights of the big city. This was where all of the retail was, this was where you went when you needed a fancy dress, or you were gonna go for a big night on the town, or you know that boyfriend really, 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 really wanted to impress you? You went to Chilcothy Street, and it was a big freaking deal to go to Chilcothy Street. And I heard those stories growing up in Cleveland. About 2000, I moved from Wisconsin to Cincinnati. My mother lives in Cleveland. She's from Portland. Map is Squidward. At one point, my mother and my father came down to visit, and we decided to drive over to Portland. Never, I'd never been to Portland. My mother hadn't been there in 40 years. She had moved north when she graduated from high school. She was the youngest of 12. Once she got out of high school, her mom, her oldest brother, and herself were the only ones left at home, went to Cleveland, because that was where all of her older brothers and sisters lived. And my grandmother was widowed, and they were supporting my grandmother. So they go north. I think she went back down for a funeral or something, maybe once or twice. Decades go by, she doesn't go back to Portsmouth. I moved to Cincinnati, we go over to Portsmouth. We get to 
Chilcoffee Street. And my mother is stunned. She looks like the world has shifted in a way that she doesn't understand, that she cannot understand. And it's because this street doesn't look like this. This street is almost entirely vacant. It looks nothing like what she remembered. And she's shocked. About five years later, maybe seven, I had an opportunity to do some downtown revitalization planning for Portland. So I have a little bit of a clue what I'm walking into. So I go to Portsmouth, and the Chilcoffee Street is still vacant. There's a few things come off, but it's still in pretty rough shape. But I start, as I start learning what's going on in the community, I start finding out about, you know, the new, the new microbrewery. That you wouldn't have noticed if you didn't know where to look for it, but it's starting to get off the ground. The Kroger, which is not a conventional downtown building, but has the highest square foot sales of Kroger's in Ohio, and it has, at that point, I don't know if it still does, and it has the first sushi bar in southeastern, south, southeastern Ohio. There's a district off to the side of Chilcotti Street called Boneyville that has all sorts of new shops in it. People are getting started. Stuff's happening. When we did a conventional market study for this region, because we had a, a city council president who said, well, I called Target and told Target that they should come here to Portsmouth, and I don't know why Target isn't returning my phone calls. You're snickering, that's a good sign. So we ran the conventional market analysis numbers. And it was really obvious why Portsmouth, or why Target was not returning their phone calls. Because there was nothing there that looked like a Target demographic. But when we started looking more broadly, when we started kind of looking for those hidden stories, we started finding opportunities. And Chilcoffee Street doesn't look like this today, and it's never going to look like this again but it's becoming its own thing. It's becoming a new thing. It's becoming something that reflects what it has to work with today. And if you look deep enough, you find what there is to work with. It's not in those conventional numbers. And, by, and, and really what they've been doing in Portsmouth, and it's been a long, long, long haul, and it's going to continue, they're blowing on the numbers. That's the work. That, I think, is the tough work that faces you folks, that faces us, regardless of what kind of title you have. You work with communities. Where we're at at this point in life is growing that ecosystem. We've got to blow on those embers. We've got to help those things grow. Now, when I initially set up this talk, I was going to have Amber Spurge from Greenville, which is up near Dayton, come and tell you a little bit about what they've been doing along those lines. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to be here. I've known that for a few weeks. I forgot to change it on the, on the program. So if you were dying to see Amber, I'm really sorry. That's my fault. But as I said, here's my contact information. If you want to see this presentation down the road, 
or you want to share it with anybody, it will be available in the form that you saw at, at ohioplanning.org. It will also be available in an annotated version on my website, which is wiseconomy.com. I've also been audio recording it, so hopefully we can, we can podcast it as well. Um, most of what I've been doing over the last couple of years has been around podcasting and, um, and writing. With some, you know, that's all thrown in. We've got a few minutes, and if I let you go now, I know they're not ready for lunch yet. So let me ask you a little bit, if you can spare me five minutes. Let me ask you a little bit, ask you for a little bit of dialogue. Because as I've said a couple of times in here, I don't have all the answers yet. I feel like I've got pieces of it. And there's people nationally who are talking about these issues. And we're starting to get some pieces of it. And we're starting to figure out how to put the pieces together. But it's by no means a complete picture yet. You guys are experts in a lot of areas. What are you seeing? What are you seeing that maybe we didn't address here? Am I going to break this if I sit on it, Steve? All right. <laughs> Good thing they sent an Anderson Township person in here to keep an eye on me. What are you seeing in your communities? What's, what challenges are you seeing that kind of reflect what we're talking about or have nothing to do with what, we're ta what I've just talked about? What are you guys seeing going on? You can just yell out. You don't even have to yell. It's a small room. What's the battle between neighboring communities? Cincinnati and A lot of communities that are neighboring each other and they battle for the jobs when we largely know as planners that as a region we benefit mm -hmm. not from those internal battles but from a regional cooperation. Totally. Has anybody seen the New York Times series that was out um, at the very end of last year? Okay, I see a few head nods. This was on, this came out of the, out of, uh, the reporter's name is Louise Story. This came out of the New York Times. It was a week-long series. It is absolutely worth reading if you're interested in the issue that Wendy just raised, which is why are we having these battles? Why are we having these incentive battles? Why are we having these border battles between these communities? It is an impressive study, an impressive set of reporting. There's an enormous database that goes with it that is publicly available. I had an opportunity to hear the report. This reporter, you want to talk about somebody who's got some, something going on? This reporter showed up at the International Economic Development Council leadership meeting, stood in front of 400 people, and talked about her research showing why the economic development incentives that many of them considered their stock and trade were completely a bad idea. That will be available, that conversation will be available on YouTube. As soon as I know where it is, I will post it. You know, I'll, I'll try to make sure that that's available for folks. The story and the database that she put together, the series of stories are at the New York Times. The amazing thing to me about that was how many people you know, I th you know, we thought that she would get killed. The, the few of us who sort of had a sense that, um, you know, this doesn't make, this isn't making sense, this is stupid, you know, same kind of things you were just saying. There were a few of us that we all knew that other people were thinking that, and we all went, 
Is she going to come out of here alive? Are they going to take her apart? I had a colleague, um, Anatolio Ubaldi, from a firm called GIS Planning, which does a lot of the economic development database, um, things that you, you know, communities have online or states have online. He did an Ignite session that basically said incentives should not happen. And he called a spade a spade, and he's a friend of mine, and he was nervous as hell about it beforehand. But it's, people are starting to get that message. So I think it's starting to change. I don't know when it's going to. I shouldn't have gone into all of that stuff. That wasn't you know, my intention. But I, I'm so recently coming off of that, it was an astonishing experience. What else are you guys seeing in your own communities when you're looking at these retail districts? Yeah, well, I, I've seen what happens um, a lot of time is you have a business district that may be the main business district in your community, and it becomes so valuable, and possibly there are a few landowners that control a lot of the land. The rents start getting really high. Well, then there's other, <clears throat> other um, kind of offshoot areas that are also zoned for businesses, and sometimes they're transitional areas that used to be just mostly residential, but businesses are allowed in them. So mm -hmm. what happens is a lot of businesses will prefer to go there because the rents aren't so high. So instead of having a nice compact business district, what you get is the business district where they begin to see some vacancies. And mm -hmm. the smaller businesses that could be in that business district to support it are kind of scattered around. And mm -hmm. they're so far away from everything, they that you know, they struggle for survival as well. Sure. So I don't know. If, I don't think there's any way you can really control the. Yeah. You know, the market has to control the prices. So. Did you Did you guys hear that? I mean, okay, everybody over there heard that pretty well. I mean, you've got a couple of things going on there. You've got you've got the market forces, and particularly when you have people who have. I mean, one of the one of the ongoing bugaboos with this, and it doesn't matter whether the landlord is Kimco or it's you know, Joe Blow who, you know, spends his winters in Florida and inherited all this stuff from his grandmother. You get these, you get property owners who have very unrealistic expectations of what their property is worth. And we like to talk about the market, you know, on this invisible hand and, you know, the market will work itself out. The mar that, that whole idea presumes perfect information. And if you've got a, a one guy who can afford to sit on a few vacancies, he doesn't have very perfect market information. The fantasy world that he lives in is that somebody's out there who will pay what I want for this, and that may or may not be the case. Now, when you're dealing with the small businesses that are kind of becoming scattered out, are they in residential buildings, historically residential buildings, or are you talking about the ones up Camargo? Uh, some of them are in, in residential buildings, mm -hmm. little houses. Yeah. So what's happened um, is we have like five or six banks now mm -hmm. on Miami Avenue, mm -hmm. which is not really a good business mix. Yeah, yeah. But they're, the banks are the ones that have the money to, you know, actually buy the property, do teardowns, and build the new structures. So that's, right. that's what happens. Right. And there's. You know, you guys know that through zoning, you can, you know, sort of put some controls on the physical structure of how that works, but you can't control who's in there. The best you can do is try to try to facilitate it so that whatever's built there can be readily reused for something else down the road, which, you know, requires a certain amount of political willpower that, you know, can be can be fun to try to come up with. Um, I have 
the nice thing about when small businesses are going into those outlying spaces is that if you have a declining population, sometimes that can be, that can be a little helpful as long as it's not creating parking problems or anything like that. But it's, also, I mean, it's a way to seed in a sense. Sometimes you can go into those you know, houses, and I can't think exactly what you're, you're, you're talking about, but you can go into a little house, and that can be a place to get started and then be able to relocate to a vacancy. So sometimes they can have a little incubator effect if, you know, for what that's worth. What else are you guys seeing? Yeah. One thing that we've just recently done in our community, we did a lot of- And you're in, I, I'm just wondering. Wyoming. You're in Wyoming, okay, cool. Um, so we're kind of unique in, in terms of being mostly residential, but we have some small commercial um, corridors. Actually, you look a lot like Madeira, so. Yeah, <laughs> but not quite the volume of businesses, but um, similar demographic. Um, city put a lot of money into the streetscapes and the public parking and um, doing a lot of those kind of infrastructure improvements. And then more recently, we contracted with HCDC to provide us some more economic development mm -hmm. um, type services that we just weren't good at mm -hmm. um, as a municipal government. And one of the cool things that came out of that was access to their business coach, which we were able to open up to some of our small businesses. Good. Um, Does everybody hear that? So, so HTDC, I should have mentioned that before. That would have been a great resource. I wasn't thinking local. Um, HTDC actually does have some business coaching capability within that organization. So if you're in Hamilton County, I don't, I don't know what the quality of their business coaching has been like, but it sounds like... Sorry, Megan? Yeah. So it, Need it a was context. a good exercise for us to broaden our perspective of, um, as a local government, how can we best support mm -hmm. our business community? And it's not always putting in a new nice sidewalk or pavers or whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of broader thinking of um, supporting your small businesses. Yeah. Unfortunately, with everyone's experiencing such deep budget cuts, we can't continue that contract oh. um, right now, but it has at least given us a little bit different approach to how we interact with our businesses. Were, did you get any feedback from businesses? Did anybody use the coach? Yes, we did. Um, it was pretty positive feedback. Okay. So I'd be happy to talk with anybody in more detail about it. But. Cool. I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. That's awesome. Anybody else? Well, yeah, what are you guys sitting there? Um, Dealing with oversupply. He's in, this is, this is Mar Marty from Middletown. <laughs> um, similar to your Cleveland slide, we, there's just too much um, space. And Middletown was a boom town in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and constructed a lot of strip shopping centers mm -hmm. that had certain size anchors. And as the townships and surrounding areas have built new, fresh space, a lot of those people have migrated. Yeah. to the newer, fresher yeah. space. And there's not a tendency for the owners of those older centers to revitalize, mm. modernize, make them attractive. So they are utterly vacant and have been vacant for now almost decades. And the owners won't put investment in it. Um, and they keep thinking, well, you know, eventually somebody's going to come along and and rent it, but the fact is, the more they deteriorate, the less likely they're right. going to be occupied. Are the are the owners and 
you know, this may not be a, you know, there's, there's one simple answer, but are, do the owners tend to be local or do yeah. they tend to be, okay, so they're, they're at a distance, state. so they're not seeing it. Mm -hmm. It's already paid off, mm -hmm. so there's no, they're not having any outlay. Do you have code enforcement? We do. On them? And we've been using Young Ha, you made a funny face when I said that. <laughs> it, we've had some marginal success with that. I mean, it, it doesn't make the buildings look fresh and pretty. Right. It just makes sure that they've got paint. Has, has anybody talked about, and I'm, you know, not working with Middletown, so I can say whatever I want to. Has, um, has anybody thought about using code enforcement as a little bit of a, um, shall we say, a prod strategy? A stress Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Lovely and perfect way to do that. In Green Bay, there, there were actually some targeted neighborhoods that went through a very, very intensive, and they've done this in, in Cincinnati, some of the neighborhoods too, where it's very targeted and you say, as a policy, we're concerned with this area. We're going to really focus on code enforcement in this area. And you know, focus the inspections, focus the attention there. And that can be, as Kathleen elegantly put it, a stress inducer to give somebody a little bit of a feeling of, yeah, this is kind of a pain in the butt. Maybe I just want to get rid of this thing. Yeah. I, I mean, what we're trying to do is just eliminate it from the inventory. Uh, because no matter how pretty <coughs> you make it, yeah. it's going to be difficult to try to attract those businesses back. That are sure, yeah. Them. It's not going to be... Regionally, we don't need that much right. space. And there might be some, you know, very specific targeted opportunities for some kind of startup something. Um, you know, some of those nationally are being used as incubators. They can be really nice space for incubators, especially if it's kind of a, a larger format space, and you can just kind of use it and chop it up as, as you see fit. Um, Springboro has actually gotten some higher ed into one of their um, one of their strips on 73, so they might not be a bad idea, bad one to talk talk to. Just kind of, I, I don't know whether they actually recruited that or if it just sort of happened. But that's another conversion that we've seen is some of those strip malls going to to, to higher ed facilities or community facilities. So, anybody else have anything they want to throw in the conversation? Because I think we're getting pretty close to lunch.